Welcome back to all our supporters and friends and family from all over the world. And I always want to make a shout out for my family in the Philippines because it's so far away. But with everything that's happening, we become we became we become closer and closer. And so today I just want to remind people that if you like this conversation and it truly resonates to you, please don't hesitate to um go ahead and uh, you know share it to other people like and subscribe and definitely in in whatever way you can um do something about what resonates to you okay because sometimes i don't want us to have all that conversation just compartmentalize in our brain but express it in the best way that you can so that we can all co-collectively achieve the goal of seeing our common enemy so this we have been doing this as you as you all know and um so Joaquin Flores for me, he's not new to me, but he I really wanted to, to find a, a good source or a good connection, a good community. So when then, especially during the Russia and uh, Russia and Ukraine proxy war for, for, you know, for US. So I said, let me find a way that I can connect with Joaquin. And so he is my best um source of information that i go to in the morning and in the evening and in the middle of the day i just keep because he it's he posts forever all those critical information so we will we would like to welcome joaquin to our platform and i said even if i knew him i got a little intimidated on how i will invite joaquin because he's so busy and you know you don't want to interrupt the flow of someone you really admire so joaquin flores if you google him and then in telegram which all of us should be is you you replace the name joaquin but with a capital x O-A-Q-U-I-N Flores, and then type in again, new resistance, and then you'll have him, you'll, you'll be in there. Okay, so, and again, you know, it's, it's I love it. He, you could, he could talk to you anything from, from waffle, from maple syrup pan pancake, which, which is important. He just doesn't include posts there that is like nonsense. But you see in this game, of mind wars of information we are we are bombarded from all facets of life from all aspects of our humanity of our divinity so we have to be sharp okay and then when everything gets so serious in his telegram boom suddenly he posts a nice music i like that and music again from his culture in you know as mexican american to now he's in serbia so he'll talk to us more about that and i just like it i just like it it make, keeps me real and grounded in my um existence in this 3d world but at the same time connects me beyond my 3d world to my soul to my oversoul and to everything that life just is more than what we see now so joaquin is of is one of my best person that if I want to not to be depressed, if I want to see hope now or for the future for my grandchildren and for other grandchildren, then I say, let me check what's going on. And oh, the best thing is, even if he is 
his expertise is is in the Ukraine war, or may, he'll have more information about Syrian conflict. But I see information about United States, which I don't even see in other platforms. So you see, that's how connected he is. And I'm sure he could, if I ask him something about the Philippines, which I think the Filipinos should know, okay, then I, I know I could depend on his knowledge and information. So Joaquin, <laughs> thank you so much. And I'm I, allowing me for saying all of this, but then go ahead and please tell our audience more because this is your first time with us and I want you to keep coming back. I, um, again, want to thank you for the introduction. So yeah, it's, uh, with my name, what happens is I've been, um, I found that not only when I was the deleted from uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, that not only uh, my, um, you know, IP address, but my likeness, my name, I couldn't use. I was able to make an account changing the spelling of my name. Um, there's two, you know, there's two traditional spellings for names like Joaquin or Javier, and sometimes with a J and sometimes with an X. So I just changed it up. And um, for me, it's just like, uh, you know, many people um, fixate on the exact spelling of their name. And at this point, I'll go, I'll, you, know, you can call me Hakim, you can call me Joaquim, you can call me. Uh, just don't call me late for dinner. But, um, you know, I figure it's like, um, what's in a name? They, But they they definitely did not allow, you know, the censorship is out of control. So I successfully was able to get to a certain point in uh, Instagram without too many uh, shadow bans and limitations, as they call them. Um, but uh, I faced some, some legal problems with... Uh, a major newspaper in the UK. Uh, we settled out of court and I signed a non-disclosure agreement about the paper um, involved, but they defamed me in, a, in print. So um, they tried to say that I was an influencer and so that the standard of my personhood was of a public person. And I insist that I'm a private person. You know, um, the things that I talk about are of public interest. Uh, just like a journalist or someone else, but I'm not a celebrity or a politician or a, a person outside of the rights of a private person. So um, I keep all my social media very low, low profile now uh, moving forward. But, um, you know, they uh, but here I am. Yes, whatever you want to spell my name, it's still me. And um, yeah, I figure like with a Telegram channel, um, you know, I. There, some of them are run by some of these other channels are run by whole teams and professionals and stuff. Um, this for me is just an outlet to be able to maintain a communication with the outside world. Um, uh, you know, I, I decided for a lot of reasons that in the first couple of years, I had a couple of kids recently, like back to back. And I felt that, you know, the most important thing was to be available for them. So I, I, cut my work life back by about, oh, 70%, 60%. And um, I, I have no regrets, but I have to, yeah, but staying, you know, if you disappear out of sight, you know, then you're, you're gone, you're gone, you know? So I appreciate anybody reaching out and be like, hey, are you still alive? Do you want to come and talk to us on our show? I said, 
yes, definitely. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in retirement, but I'll come out, you know, time and time again to, uh, especially with like two wars going on, it's kind of hard to be in retirement as a geopolitical analyst with an expertise in counterinsurgency and security studies to look at like conflicts in Ukraine or in Gaza with Israel and like be quiet. You know what I mean? So yeah, here I am. Uh, thanks for having me. No, it's truly a pleasure. As I said, I've been eyeing on you. <laughs> and, and then when I asked Matthew first, I said, I'm not sure he's so busy. Yeah. Um, I, I, at some, every now and then I could hear like a, uh, an extra sound coming from you, uh, Joaquin. So maybe if I uh, mute you now and then, when you're not talking, of course. Okay. All right. No problem. So, <laughs> Well, obviously, you know your priorities, and I think with all the things that's going on, the, our most, most important priority goes back to the micro level, and that's to our immediate family. But at the same time, yeah, as you said, it's hard. When you know something, you can't really shut your mind off already of not knowing. And when you are as gifted as you are, how can you not share your gift? You're so much intelligent in discerning these things. So with you know, with everything that's happening now, what what are the opportunities that you you can see? Because most people can just see the doom and gloom and the one thing that irks me, the comment that most people will say, hey, this has been happening for 2,000 years and this and that. So it's like, oh, okay. So please, <laughs> please share your thoughts on that. Yeah, there, there, um, well, a couple of things that you mentioned right now made me think of how um, intelligence organizations for a long time have been both influencing people in social media and also posing at creating networks of bots or troll armies or troll farms and bot armies. Uh, many governments and political parties around the world do it, so it's not unusual. It's, it's just part of political warfare. And um, information warfare is an extension of political warfare. So um, we should not be surprised that within ostensibly counter hegemonic movements um the there are uh forces of the status quo you know you can characterize that as evil you can characterize that as problematic or neutral i wouldn't characterize it as neutral but everyone can agree it's the status quo so obviously the status quo uh is just like a body is trying to maintain uh some type of uh of, of being uh, of a homeostasis. So the homeostasis of the system um, is based upon its what the body is telling its directives are, right? But those messages are coming based upon a paradigm that we no longer are living in. So, um, but within that, within the system's predictable methods, like its own histamine response, right now it's deploying antibodies in the form of what? Bots, trolls, or uh, hit pieces, or maybe sometimes just articles that are totally false written in mainstream media. It could be uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post, the, et cetera, et cetera, the Telegraph, the Times UK, even BBC and um, public and public radio and television in the US 
are not immune to these distortions. So it's not just a problem in the private sphere with the corporate media. So this is also our tax dollars and the messaging. And people are being paid to manage many, many accounts that, well, they'll agree with you about, well, COVID is bad or sending countless billions to Zelensky is bad or many things. But they will conclude with, nothing is going to succeed. We are all going to fail as a people. The ones in power will prevail. This has been going on for thousands of years. And it's a, it's a lie. So part of uh, shaping our, our, our present and part of shaping our, our understanding of what is possible, right, is based in shaping our understanding of what has always been. Because our, uh, our limitations and our horizons are going to, our sense of what's possible is always kind of driven by our experience. The, the idea of looking back in time is something which our paradigm has had a very difficult time grappling with because so much of our paradigm was shaped in resistance to past forces of reaction and generations of what we from the present perceive as backwardsness, that the idea of looking back in time for answers for problems that we're facing tomorrow seems so dumb. But increasingly, more and more people, and I think it's a majority now, in fact, so I'm kind of just telling the story of why we are here like this now. More people are looking to the past. It can be 50 years ago or 500 years ago when it comes to health, political ideas, whatever it is, people are looking to the past at what you might call perennial wisdom or ancient wisdom. Um, you know, the idea that we don't have what it takes now, but that we're gonna build something that's gonna tell us what it takes, right? That, that whatever we build is not gonna have or be inhibited by the same, same limitations of the limitations of those who created it, right? Whether talking about artificial intelligence or anything else. So the, this whole, kind of progressive futurist way of looking at time or the idea that time is linear in such a way that uh, our, our efforts and technologies inevitably, no matter whose hands they are in, <laughs> are going to be good, right? These are the types of, um, I would say, false ideas of this, of uh, someone else's dream that we've been living in. It's so true, though. I cannot agree with you more because as a holistic nurse and with, with my initial training in the Philippines, you know, it's if you do not look back to what you've been doing before or how you were even born, what your mother went through. It's like if you just have a, a some type of illness that happened already after maybe 11 years, when, when you're 11 years old, it seems like, you know, you can't. You, if you don't look back, then you can't really solve that problem, right? Um, uh, so anyway, I'm going to let you talk more because there's, uh, I, I hear that there's a, not a very good sound coming from me and I like my people to listen to you. So, okay. So I'll, I'll jump in there, Chris, while you're getting the technical okay. issues resolved. So like, I know you're talking about, say, the Ukraine, and I mean, regarding the censorship, Grace has been kicked off YouTube. I got kicked off at a very early stage with the awakening. I got kicked off Linktree, loads of things, shadow banned and everything. But what we see is a lot of the times, a lot of these people that are kind of so-called on our side, we don't see that with them. So it's like you, you kind of know by who's getting promoted that 
what to be careful of because unfortunately sometimes the, the people are there on control opposition and they're pushing people in the wrong direction but we'd say to ukraine because what, what i've had actually is i had a family that moved in with a friend their house was bombed and they just kind of moved with the clothes in the back so i went to her i interviewed her then we had the guy on this show uh stan bogdan off i think is his name twice saying how things are in russia and, and like fully behind putin and everything and then i had an american guy who was living in holland and decided to go down to the border to help and he was given a totally different story as well and he was just saying both sides were being abused and everything so i always like to get yeah so but i what i wanted to do is get information from all sides but i know that you have a lot of experience in this so i suppose what's the current situation you might kind of give us an up-to-date of what's going on there like to the minute right now in ukraine i would say that number one in the politics and the capital kiev you have a crisis in leadership you have um, a lot of problems happening basic life problems with whether it's uh, transportation communication there's difficulties um economic difficulties from the from the war but also the corruption so this is they have uh on around june 4th tried to do a very big counteroffensive. uh within four or five days it was evident it would not succeed um it would go on to take an additional 90 days 60 to 75 days for media to really recognize what was happening very thoroughly it would be another 90 days from that initial uh june 4th uh, counteroffensive from Ukraine. It will be another 90 days from that date until they said, in fact, that Russia is taking the advantage. So in the past four or five days, we could say that Russia has moved in 60 to 65 different places. Uh, Ukraine's been trying to move in about two places. Russia definitely has the initiative. Um, in terms of the concentration of forces, it would appear that Russia has about uh, three to one to five to one manpower advantage um, in most places uh, where the line of contact would be. Um, but it's about a three to one to five to one Russian manpower advantage along the entire line of contact in the battle space. Then you would look at the fact that Ukraine is really burnt through uh, a lot of their um, infantry fighting vehicles, um, armored vehicles and tanks that had either they were donated or they purchased, usually from European and American tax dollars that were donated to Ukraine. Others came in the form of loans. Right now, for, since September 17th or 25th, they've been unable to get new money. So now we're October, November, December. You see, we're now going to be almost four months uh, we're three months now, we'll be four months in January from when they said we already passed a red line. So at the end of October, they said that we're 93% spent with every last dime that anyone's given us. Um, they need $30 billion just to keep the civil society and the public sector together for the next two to three years. The European Union was gonna, give 15 billion towards that now they say hey can you start counting the military stuff that we donated you could you, we now put that to you know mark to market and then deduct that from any present or future unreached obligations so you can see that even the europeans are backtracking significantly 
on their monetary and military support. So significantly, Ukraine does not have any 155 millimeter shells to speak of in volume, which is what's required to make any difference. They also have about a, a 10 to one disadvantage, even at their pinnacle of deploying uh, howitzer and long range systems, artillery systems like surface to surface systems and having going through 155 millimeter shells. They might have been going through 70,000 of them every 10 days at, at the peak of that. Well, Russia was going through 150 to 200,000 every 10 days during that same period, but also spread out across about five or 10 times as many um, surface to surface systems. So the, the advantages are not, you know, it's, it's this is not any longer anything like a, a, a close or approximate fight. It has just been disastrous from the point of view of Ukraine's uh, present leadership to treat the innocent civilians of Ukraine in this way. This is totally unjustified. It's, of course, if you have a, a reasonable, articulable chance to win, I can understand, you know, and if millions sacrifice towards a reasonable and articulable strategy to win, hey, more power to you. So it's not just about the numbers, it's about losing innocent people in vain. And you have increasingly, Ukrainians get this too, because why? Well, the all of the mobilization now is forced, which means that you have guys running around in uniforms, going into restaurants, going into people's homes, going into people and just grabbing them off the street, sometimes breaking their arms if they resist and throwing them in the back of the truck and getting them consigned, put them a backpack and a gun and send them off. So the average lifespan of a man who's been deployed like that to the front is less than five days. So you have, for example, in a 24 hour period, 10 men sent to the front where action is happening. And one day later, when they come to bring something or to pick up injured, it's gonna be seven or eight out of that 10. So this is a realistic uh, picture that's just unsustainable for Ukraine. And for the sake of humanity, for the sake of, you know, the ending the, the bloodshed, which at this point is not necessary. Um, so just, I would just like to on that, which because yeah. like you were saying, they're putting in people that haven't been trained in military and everything. Because in Ireland, like they were when all the Ukrainians were kind of being kind of you know getting asylum, they were giving them houses, all all the benefits and everything. And now they're saying, oh, it's only for three months, but they're actually doing conscription, so they're getting letters from the Irish government saying, hey, you have to go out and fight. And I heard they're doing the same for women, which is terrible because one, nobody should fight for anybody, but two, going out on the front line with zero experience is like what you've just said. And you know, all like this, people are just getting murdered. Yeah, I, I think from this conflict, we may see a new referendum on the ideas we have about the role of women in combat. Um, I think everyone's comfortable with seeing women in uniform and seeing women in the military. But the idea that they're going to be in trenches, um, I, I would just think, first of all, about the the the, the dangers and the, the problems that happen when you have groups of men isolated under conditions of violence and seclusion from civilization for long periods of time. And then there's like one chick in there. To me, that seems like it's going to ask, even if the woman is not uh, harmed, there, it can raise competition between the men. Yeah, you're going to get very, you know, silverback gorilla versus, you know, beta kind of, you're going to get many different uh, basic uh, primate behaviors that you find, you know, in National Geographic um, when you have like 10 men in the condition of war and one woman in a trench. So, but we're now seeing women casualties. Uh, we're now seeing women amputees. We're now seeing things that we, that 
no reasonable government, right, would would agree to at this scale, right? We're not talking about an incident where we lost some female soldiers and now we're gonna do something. No, this is their plan. Their plan is now as of October 1st, they can conscript women. So this is um again not a good sign that they're making any progress. And the average age of the Ukrainian soldier right now is about 46 years old, or the median age. So this is, uh, I don't think that's very old because that's how old I am. However, uh, others would say that uh, that's too old to be out there, you know, getting killed. So I, I would agree any age is too old, but um, you know, it's uh, the idea that there are still plenty of young men in the country who are in their twenties. Why are they not in uniform? Because in Ukraine, the, the corruption and the class system the lack of a basic kind of a democratic or a basic uh, uh, impetus that, and no one believes in this conflict, that young men, if they come from a family that can afford to get them uh, out of service by paying a few thousand euros, now it's about 5,000 euros and they will do it. So this is a class problem, right? So in other words, like Ukraine's small but relevant middle class has not been pulled into this conflict. Like this has been a conflict that has been waged by the Ukrainian oligarchs against the poorest and the most vulnerable of Ukraine's people. So you have men out there in their 50s and 60s with tuberculosis, right, with cancer, uh, with, with category three disabilities. We have men being sent with mental disabilities, right? So you talk about Ukraine and you think about fascism and you think about the, the policies of eliminating people that were considered a drain on the budget. And you look at how Ukraine has been angling up to the EU and how they're talking about how they're going to get their budget together. Well, what are the reasons they're going to give? Well, look, we sent our, um, you know, mentally deficient people, we sent our handicapped people and they're dead. So now we don't need to pay for that in our social system, you see. And they're also changing their categories of what's considered disabled, right? So if they have equipped you with prosthetics, right? You will not be considered disabled. So this is, you're not going to have people with disability payments if, if they consider, they call it disability rectified or disability solved. You understand? So they have created new categories in Ukraine that's going to make them look solvent on paper. But of course, th that regime doesn't have any chance of surviving throughout the next year at the present rate. So this is about whether you have someone whose people will know Zeluzhny, who's like the head of the armed forces or the main head of the armed forces of the military. And then you have the, the, the defense minister and then you have Zelensky, the president. So between these three men, you kind of have this triangle of who to blame about, right, what's going on. Well, there's no one to take credit, right, for what's going on, because as we say, right, victory has a thousand fathers, dude. But defeat, that's a fucking bastard, excuse my French, but defeat is a bastard. And so none of these people want to take responsibility. Zeluzhny wants to blame Zelensky. Zelensky wants to blame Zeluzhny if he can, but good luck. So this is a very, very difficult situation they find themselves in. Um, people, uh, I, don't, I don't follow this line, of, uh, but I will disclose that it has come across my screen that people think that, that maybe Zeluzhny will replace Zelensky. That's not my opinion at this time, but I've been wrong about bigger things before. Um, 
you know, you mentioned the EU. I mean, I've dug deep into that and realized, you know, a lot of people think the EU is the best thing since sliced bread, but it's as corrupt <laughs> as you get. One of the previous presidents there, Donald Tusk, now in a political party in Poland, I've seen something where he's kind of supporting Ukraine. Did you hear anything about that? Yeah, it, um, Tusk, Tusk, Tusk's position, it's believed that, in fact, support for Tusk was brought back. We saw over a million Poles in the street uh, protesting uh, before the election, and we saw Tusk come in, you know, they have in, in, uh, in Poland system. So my sense is that um, Tusk is there to put a different face on what they're trying to do. But I think that what's unique about Tusk is that he has been believed to be closer than even the outgoing to um, to some of these ideas of new Europe, uh, of, of Poland acting alone independently. Uh, on the other hand, um, you have Farmers in Ukraine have pickets. They, they're uh, sorry. Farmers in Poland have pickets against Ukrainian goods uh, at intersections. They've been protesting on and off. They've had rolling strikes, rolling protests. You're familiar, of course, with the outrageous deformation on market prices that Ukrainian goods and grain have. Um, now, it was a very good experiment, right? It was a very good experiment for Poland and for. Romania and and for Bulgaria and big produce countries like that. Why? Because if Ukraine were to be in the EU, what we saw during that first year and a half of the war of the kind of the tariff-free zone to help Ukraine, well, that was kind of a test of what the EU would do to these countries. So what would you, well, you're going to have the farmers, the growers and producers and a lot of workers out in the street protesting, trying to close off the roads or remove their government. Um, I don't think that any normal government in any of these countries can actually approve of Ukraine joining the EU. And the, the EU accession process is like a 10 to 14 year process that hasn't even started. So, I, and what's, that's so, what's so crazy to me, and I always like, am I taking crazy pills? Because people talk about stuff like as if they can like, decide on this and in 10 days it's going to or in 20 days or even in 100 days or 200 days like no this is like this is like a 10 to 14 year process that that the present french government just under macron and macron actually said the words he reiterated the same thing that angela merkel been saying since like 2016 which is ukraine not only do we not have a place for you today but we don't have a place for you like in the middle term now as a vision as a concept hey we love that you love europe you know as a vision as a concept yes we're all about you joining the eu uh but don't pencil any calendar dates because we're looking at number one you need to retake crimea and the donbass number two we don't want to be involved in that because our relationship with europe is actually more uh, and with russia is more important sorry Europe's relationship with Russia is more important than bringing Ukraine into the EU, number two, right? So it's like, why would you have twice as high energy prices and then flood your agricultural market with Ukrainian goods? So this is like a lose-lose for everyone else. And then even if they did get into the process, well, you have 20 chapters, I mean, you know this best, each one takes about six months, six minutes, 
six months to negotiate. They each independently have to be TA, like tentative agreement on each chapter, right? Then the whole collated package of, of 10 or 20 different tentative agreements has to become one final ratified agreement at the end of about a nine or 10 year process. And then it's got to go back to your own parliament or your own president or whatever your system is to ratify it. Right. And then the other countries that whole time, they had to be approved like every other of the whatever, 20 something countries in the EU, 27 something had to basically agree that any one of those can veto it and you're out or you're not in until they fix that problem. They might need to change the government in that country, right? Like through some scheme, like if it's so important to get Ukraine in or some other country. So like the idea, you know, the, the fact that Europe was even talking about changing its rules and things like this, well, that might get you through some hurdles that other countries only pointed out exist, but it's not gonna get over those other countries being against Ukraine joining the EU. Right. And what's being said now is that, hey, like all the things that I'm saying are actually not only my opinion, but they're also what the main main leaders of the EU have said. So why do so how do they answer? How do they think that Ukraine can enter the EU? Well, what they're saying is that this is not for economic purposes. Well, excuse me, the European Union, the European Union is an economic union. It is not NATO. It is not NATO. So they're saying that for security geostrategic reasons, this is what Brussels is saying, right? This is what van der Leyen is saying, that Ukraine has to join the EU for geostrategic purposes. Well, of course, they can't make an economic reason why, for the reasons we've explained. So it, this is just, you know, fortunately, I mean, and I just thank God we're dealing with such stupid people because the... You know, and, and normally we're like at a loss because we're hoping that enough people in the citizen base are going to wake up and then make a difference in a protest or an election or something. Thank God this is so stupid that even owners of major industries throughout Germany and France are up in arms against this. So even even big business, the ones that are a little more independent from the financial sector. Are totally against this. So we're not alone. This is actually one thing that almost everyone in Europe agrees on. It's, it's the funniest thing. You can be in the trade unions, the left, you can be in the, the populist right, the uh, civic nationalism, libertarianism, wherever you are. It's like the one thing that everyone agrees right now is that Ukraine has no purpose in the EU period. So it's really, it's a crazy interesting subject for sure. Yeah, like this is kind of connected as well because with the World Economic Forum and all the leaders because like uh, Klaus Schwab's is kind of saying oh like and I know the Irish guy uh, Leo Varadkar was part of the World Economic Forum does they're nearly all are and he kind of was claiming that Putin was as well but it looks like Putin is totally against it and what's your kind of call on that one? Yeah, so. The World Economic Forum invites leaders of the world to speak there. If if we evaluate what's happening in the world based upon that, then yeah, anyone who's ever been photographed next to somebody means they work for them. I've always wondered about that one. Like if you, I had a question, like if you were making a big, not you, but if a person was going to make like an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, let's say, and, and I, let's say, because my friend, I was, 13 years old, my friend was bar mitzvah. So I'm standing next to the rabbi, take a picture next to the rabbi. 
So the, the assumption is that I work for the rabbi, right? So there's a lot of projection going on when people look at these things, right? Like if you see people standing next to a picture of somebody as if this means that we're homies, that we're, we're like drinking a 40 together, we're from the hood, like this is like homie from the block. Like, no, we just, we're professionals, we're diplomats, we're businessmen, we represent interests, countries, whatever. Here we are meeting, right? We are meeting maybe to avert uh, our people killing each other. You, you know, we here we are meeting, maybe just to clarify where we stand on things. And it's hard for, I think, regular folks who live their life and they know that if they had a chance to exact a, a moment of vengeance on a crooked landlord, a crooked banker, a crooked boss they've had, they would say, how would I be in the same room with someone and not tell them off? So I think it's very hard for folks to understand that the role of statesmen is to, is to be stately and the role of diplomats is to be diplomatic. So anyway, the most important thing are not the, the, the cover of the story, but what are the contents of the book that we're looking at? Yeah, we don't judge the book by its cover. So we have the picture of Putin standing next to Klaus Schwab or Putin standing next to uh, any one of these nefarious characters in the World Economic Forum. So Putin spoke at the World Economic Forum. And what is it that he told them? Well, he told them that their way of doing things had come to an end. But he told them in a very polite way and sometimes obliquely, but very nonchalantly nonetheless. And that's what was communicated. Anyway, this is wonderful because it's still on Rumble, his entire address to the World Economic Forum. And he basically tells them to take a long walk off a short pier. Um, but he does it in the language of international relations. And um, I, I found it to be, it's one of the wonderful things that I love when to direct when a person says, hey, here's Putin talking at the World Economic Forum. And I said, oh, what did he say? And they go, I don't know, man, but look, he's there. That means he must, he's like one of them or something. And I'm like, okay, that's, I can't tell you to dig further. I can't, you know, I, I'm not the boss of anybody. So, but. Oh, brilliant. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. And like, I'm just curious on the ground level, because a lot of, I spoke to a lot of uh, Russians and what I'm finding is anyone kind of 40 plus love Putin, the younger generation. I don't know have they been brainwashed, but they're trying to get out of the country. And what's what's your kind of take on that one? Well, yeah, I mean, young people, the world is a tough place and, and uh, young people are seeing more of the world through social media than ever before. Um, you know, uh, it, the grass is always greener on the other side and the, the world, there's a lot of things and it's nice to get away from home and the world can be a seductive place. There's big cities in the world besides Moscow. Maybe you've already been there, seen it, done it. If you're 20, 25 years old and maybe Berlin or Tokyo or Paris or, or New York sounds interesting. I can totally see that, but it's not a referendum on what's going on inside of Russia. I mean, you see that. Everywhere in the world, people, especially now how connected people are with the internet, they make a friend somewhere in some other countries. Hey, come on, stay for six months. We won't re report you, you know, whatever. You can work under the table, something like that. I totally see that. But, you know, in Russia, it's um, the, I know people there as well and they work and they've been living there. I know American expatriates there and I know Russian citizens of different walks of life and and um, yeah, it's look, it's a it's a country, you know, it has problems. Um, they have uh, corruption, but not more than you would expect in a lot of places. Uh, they have issues with employment. They have issues with um, employers in the private sector, you know, paying on time or trying to come up with schemes in terms of taxes or whatever. They're always you're going to have these things. Right. 
Um, that doesn't mean the country should be destroyed. You know, it doesn't mean that it should be surrounded. It doesn't mean that it should be blockaded. It doesn't mean that it should be divided into 14 countries, which is one of the main plans that NATO has been working on long term. So, um, but they have a lot. They, I mean, the things that were much worse in the 90s under Yeltsin. I mean, they've turned things around so tremendously. And you can just look at the basic things like their alcoholism rate, their, their lifespan is going up, the different metrics are improving like on paper you know the, the, the story like, on the yeah, ground I, I, i'm different. glad you you mentioned yeltsin there sorry to interject because what i heard is he destroyed the country so much that when putin came in he's fighting this it's not something you'd fix like that and i even i was speaking to somebody they were telling me that their their father i believe was getting cancer and they were doing everything for him and i was like most of the people in the western world you get a six-month waiting list despite paying into it all your life yeah, and then you, you know, so people look at it, Russia as if it's like third world. The reality is, like, they, they care a lot more from all the stuff I'm hearing. It, yeah, it's like it's ten times better than the West. Yeah, there's there are things that don't that are not on paper, and they're also not really explained in the budget. There are cultural differences. Like I live, I live in Serbia, which is former Yugoslavia, and uh, Russians, in a loving way, I, I hope consider it to be like a little Russia, not to be confused with the other little Russia, Ukraine, but it's considered like a little Russia. And um, now the, the culture is different, but there are some similarities. Um, it, you know, I grew up as a child in, in the early eighties and there were the TV shows where like Dallas and Dynasty and uh, like everything, uh, there was a Robin Leach and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. It was uh, Corey Haim and Corey, uh feldman uh you know driving around in ferraris there was uh michael j fox a secret to my success there was uh what's his face uh with the gerbil up his butt uh, uh pretty woman richard gear um you know you uh wall street all these everything was like a success cult of you know even a person going into medicine was like i'm going to become a millionaire doctor even you know no matter what it was it's like you weren't successful unless you got rich doing it, you know? And yeah, we have that in Russia for sure. That's there. You will find it there. But the idea that that you know, a doctor, a healthcare worker, someone like this, like there is there is a greater human attachment to the patient. Does that make sense? That that there's just that these little things that might be like five percent or ten percent less bad than the United States, you know, which might not be noticeable just walking down the street, but those types of differences in percentage have a cumulative effect. You know, it's a geometric, it's like uh, it's like uh, an interest calculator. You know, it, it accumulates at a geometric rate when you have these differences in culture, just 2%, 5%. You know, people, if it's like to deny care or to give care, right? Here's someone, oh, it's gonna, this is supposed to be $150. You know, they don't have the money today. Do I turn them away or do I take them in knowing that I might not get paid or they're going to take three weeks? Of, you know, they're going to write me an IOU, you know, um, in this part of the world. And like people don't have credit scores. OK, people don't walk around knowing their FICA score. They might have one. If we don't. Equifax, FICA. We don't have this in this part of the world. So like this, you have to transplant back to maybe some time in the 1970s or 1960s before people had this in their collective consciousness, right? So like being late for 60 days on a bill, right? 
the worst that can happen is they'll send a pink notice and after 90 days they turn it off right in the united states well now you're going to get your credit score dinged right so now when you go to refinance your house instead of having prime now you right it's like this whole thing where they got you from when you're it's like here we were resisting you know cradle to grave socialism i get that but now we're living through like cradle to grave fee and find me to death man it's like everything they can financialize everything they can make it like an overdraft fee or a bounce check or whatever they can it's like every possible thing is a dollar here ten dollars there and when then when it comes down to making human life decisions about what to do with the person before you yeah it's 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 definitely um human life has a higher value for whatever reason i mean this is a sociological mass psychological question but human human life has a greater value for whatever reason in most of the post-communist world that i've traveled yeah, very good and like i mean i follow the leaders in a lot of countries just seeing how it's going on i mean I mean, I mentioned that they're puppets of the World Economic Forum, but despite that, they're they're muppets. Like you know, they they don't even make it. They can't even string a sentence properly together. If I listen to Putin, he's the only one that makes sense. That is actually when he's saying things, he's calling people out on it. Is there any other leader in the world that you see that we can kind of go, yeah, this guy has our backs, or is it just we have to look at our own sovereignty? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think. I feel always like, you know, Tina Turner from uh, Mad Max number three, Beyond Thunderdome, her famous song was, we don't need another hero. You know, I'm kind of at this place in the apocalypse where I feel like we don't need another hero. And we definitely, you know, have to be, have to introduce heroism into our own lives or our own sacrifices and actions. Um, I definitely like the idea that in these kind of quasi-apocalyptic times, you know, that justice is no longer a system, but a personal attribute, you know? Um, and the idea of justice or injustice are the things that we do or do not do us, starting with you, starting with me. So around the world, I definitely see that Putin is acting in the interest of Russia. And, you know, that would be the, the, the maximum and minimum of a mandate that I would respect anyone, from anyone anywhere. You know, um, now, if that country was a monopolar hegemon, um, then you would really have to ask, like, how sustainable is that? Is it really in the interest of the public? Because we can see what happened to our empire in the United States, or you saw what happened with the British Empire 100 years ago. So this is like not just a philosophical question, but a practical political science question. Um, I, I I think that because of Russia's position geostrategically, when it pursues its interests, like almost irrespective of the intentions of the leadership, although this matters, almost irrespective, but we can almost turn a blind eye at the internal machinations and just Russia being a strong power in the world makes the other countries in the world feel less powerful to control everyone. And it allows like the benefit of a country like Russia being strong historically in the 20th century, for example, is that it allowed countries like in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Middle East to kind of raise their heads for the first time in maybe 200 years, you know, maybe for the first time since they encountered Europeans. So 
you know, and it's not because Russia did something great for them or had some of their best interests at heart. It doesn't matter. It's just their geopolitical facticity as a counterbalance against a monopolar world, just like, you know, having two, two or three options as a consumer is better than one. So we talk about developing countries in the world, right? And they're looking at, we need to develop, we need to attract foreign investment, capital loans, infrastructure development, security, military support, diplomacy, what have you. And you only have the United States and Great Britain. Well, then you're, they're kind of going to call the shots. They might offer you a very unfair deal. And when those conditions of unipolarity or monopolarity prevail, in fact, those deals have been bad. So the existence of a, of a big Russia or even China, for example, today, India growing too, are going to provide like per, the so-called peripheral countries or the so-called global south, tremendous opportunities to develop at, at a much lower price and without the sacrifices that had been made historically, if that makes sense. So I, I just in a very you know nuts and bolts kind of dollars and cents way, it a strong Russia as a geopolitical anchor has worked wonders in curbing the, the more, let's say voracious or excessive aspects of American neo-colonialism or imperialism. And that's driven by our banks and our, and our private sector and the military industrial complex. So look, Russia is not without those. It's just another society, right? But for everyone else, they get the benefit of this competition for their attention. And um, I mean, I mean you, it's, it's impossible to think about places like you know, Ethiopia in the 60s and 70s before they hit their crisis, which is really because the Soviet Union was imploding. Um, a lot of countries were, you know, Angola. There's many places in the world, Mozambique, South Africa, uh, Libya, um, you know, Iraq, uh, Syria, Egypt, uh, India, right? We talk anyone we can talk about um, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, their trade deals with Russia, then Soviet Union were huge in their narrative and huge in their story and in, in how they develop it by the facts. So it's, um, you know, um, that's just the historical record of what a strong Russia has been in the world. Um, with the BRICS then, with the currency, you know, getting away from the dollar, because like with the, the another world economic puppet in Argentina, like a lot of people think he's a good guy, but I mean, you just kind of look at him and you know, all right, this is this is going. You know, apparently, apparently he's he's pegging to the the dollar. So did they bring in this guy to kind of rock the boat with the bricks? Yeah. So you picked up on that. So do you like what what was the lens or what did you pick up on that you're like, no, something's off with this guy, Millet in Argentina. <laughs> one just looking at his eyes to be honest which i like yeah. you, can, you know you just look at an energy level and stuff like that and then when you know he's part of the world economic forum that that in itself is like a red flag and yeah when i heard about the dollar that day, you know he was trying to peg to the like there's so many different jigsaw pieces just one of them was was enough to kind of go yeah this isn't as good as this, uh, as people are thinking yeah it's it's you know bricks is um BRICS actually is very interesting because um, a long time ago, around 99 or 2000, there was, um, gosh, there was e there was a maybe a Merrill Lynch analyst. It was either Merrill Lynch or or um, I will have to think. But there was a there was a, a, a an analyst, but who was definitely you know talking his book, who said that he he actually came up with the acronym BRICS to describe Brazil, Russia, India, China. 
not because he thought they were going to make an alliance per se, but that this was a word that they came up with to describe the fastest growing economies in the world at the time 25 years ago. So by and large, those have remained the fastest growing economies. I think it's easier for countries like uh, like India and China because their population is going to drive so much of that. They, they, they Even with errors, they're going to have tremendous growth just because of the basic maths of development. So um, this is now keep in mind uh, BRICS represents like four, five, like four of the about four half of the world's population, something like that. So nearly half of the world's population represented by BRICS countries. But you know the thing is that it's not a military alliance, and it's not an economic exclusion zone, right? It doesn't work like the World Trade Organization with most favored nation status. And it doesn't work like the IMF or the World Bank, which says you need to create destabilized systems so that we can keep a color revolution check on your processes in the future as an insurance system against your own sovereignty. So it's a very different, but it is in the final analysis like, hey, we need to borrow money to develop our country or to do the next big leap forward or whatever we're going to do. That's our mandate. And either we're going to borrow $5 billion at 10% or we're going to fire we're going to borrow 5 billion dollars at 5% or 3% or something like this you know and those differences make a big difference for countries because we're talking about budgets from which they're making decisions about you know early life care or late or elderly care prenatal care child care um, k12 education the infrastructure roads you know things like that i mean this is very these are the things that people like Gene Sharp studied, who was an analyst and uh, one of the, um, you would really call him one of the founding fathers, so to speak, of color revolutions. Um, that these are that these are the things that are are used and, and and looked at. So it's countries. It's not the the fact that you have now BRICS as as an alternative structure. What countries can choose to borrow and not have to, you know, the IMF as the only, you know, as the only guy in the game for a long time, right, was able to tell you like, hey, you need to cut your, whatever your, your we, we listed those types of public institutions, you need to cut that by half or you don't qualify for the loan. So then countries cut that by half. Right. But then that creates problems in the country. But those are known to cause those problems. Those cuts were known to cause those problems. So now you can now you have a narrative. You can control the political system and now you can actually gaslight them. Like you can accuse them of doing the thing that you told them to do to qualify for the loan. And now you can accuse them of being human rights violators. Now you can say we're not going to lend you more money unless you make concessions to this group. The, the group that was created through the actions that you did because we told you to do them, right? So now you have ISIS or you have radicals running around or you wherever you have guerrillas, it can be Latin America, you see, and it's gonna, they're gonna create this. So having alternate lending structures is not just about sovereignty in some long-term sense, but we're actually talking about indemnifying or insuring countries from uh, direct, uh, kinetic, uh, acute attacks. Um, of that type that we've seen, you know, so much, especially since 
well from around the 60s onwards excellent thank you very much listen grace is after getting her technical issues resolved so i'll let pass it back to hopefully this works but i was i'm really intently listening to the conversation between the two of you and there's so many words or topics that i if uh you know joaquin have a chance can mention more so like when you did mention because i think um clarification on the subtopics will also help the audience and especially my groups when i go and meet them um when when you mentioned about the credit score uh, the, the some americans because of listening for all those years and now constantly when they said oh aren't you aren't don't aren't don't do you want to be do, don't you want to have anything to say about technology and about china and look what's happening in china they keep saying okay your social credit score all day but then at the same time I, I like okay when i came here from the philippines i didn't get my credit card without going through the process without going so it's, it's like that's already a social credit score so talk talk to us about that and of course when someone said okay i know I know the phones, the technology is like you're always camera all over. But then, okay, so what do you want to do? Go back if there's any chance to go back in what a thousand years ago. But is that really a natural part of evolution? So please share your thoughts on that. Oh, sorry. This is like uh, this is when I talk about when we confuse the things that our oligarchs are doing for China. I, this is one of my favorite subjects because it's like, so I'm not Chinese. I don't know if that's obvious to folks, but I'm not Chinese. I don't live in China. And, um, you know, I know they have challenges and I know that there are things that they must be going through because all people go through this and the world is like this and the human experience is, is more alike than different in this way. Um, you know, from the outside looking in, China does a very good job at presenting that they have their stuff together from the outside looking in as, a, as an analyst. Now, um, in the West, as we've been struggling and kind of looking at these questions like the Great Reset, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, these white papers and books that come out uh, from the World Economic Forum uh, talking about COVID-19, the Great Reset, uh, the fourth industrial revolution and um, what's the other one they have um, inclusive capitalism or capitalism 2.0 is the latest one um, they all uh, are of course <clears throat> framing things uh, in a way that um, there's one there's a one-to-one -one relationship between new technologies and their vision and their control over implementation of these new technologies, right? So one of the things that I found that we have to do is we have to separate what they're talking about from the technologies that exist and the direction that they could be going and where people want them to go. And um, one of the things that we've been worried about is called social credit. And yet it's the United States that has longest had a social credit system. And it, it's so unusual and strange that we point to China to talk about to talk like to talk about a future problem that we might have because China has it now, 
without realizing that we actually have that problem already. We invented that problem and we had it first, right? So like many people don't understand that in, in most of the rest of the world, people do not have a credit score. Now, like now, assuming you want to go and do something that is not expected or not necessary in many parts of the world, like take out a loan to buy a home. See, many people don't understand that what had been considered the middle class and even the developing world had enough built a second home for their children or they built other homes and they had more than one home. So this is many interesting things that have happened in the world that um, we assume that uh, that young people, when they go out into the world, that the first thing they're going to need to do is buy a home. It's going to be a new home or something like this. And then we think about credit and credit scores. But even though when a person would from another country go to a bank, you know, there is going to be an assessment like there will be a number. Ultimately, there is a score. OK, but that score is not affected by things that you do on a monthly basis or a daily basis, you know. Um, so people don't know what their score is and they don't they, there isn't there isn't like a, 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 a phone number or a thing you can dial into, like with a fax machine and get your score based upon your Social Security number. OK, like this is something that is unique in uh, Western and European countries like a five and European Western European countries. But the rest of the world does not, by and large, have this. So now think about China, for example. Right. This is a a huge country it's more than a country it's a civilization right and and china's like maybe five or seven or eight countries all rolled into one and you have very wealthy parts and you have very developing parts you have parts of china that you would think that you're in the 16th century and you have parts of china that surpass the greatest parts of tokyo now so you have this combined and uneven development so now, imagine you have uh, a system where people in the villages in the countryside have never had to have credit, never applied for credit. They don't know what their credit score is, right? Uh, and their credit worthiness is not the most important thing. The most important thing is their worth, is their, their trustworthiness. So one of the things that's interesting is that, like we said, that from the outside looking in, China is very cohesive. Inside, China is managed very decentralized. China inside of China is a very decentralized country, like India. Any country of this scale is going to be like 10 countries in there, right? That each have states and governors and systems. And so they, the way that someone would know that someone was a, a bad landlord or a bad tenant right wouldn't be through court records that anyone could access around the world you don't have like a better business bureau right you don't have fica individual credit score so chinese social credit system as it's introduced is largely to start to even understand who lives in the country because you have maybe 600 million people that live outside of the main cities so um <clears throat> we had that for a long time when we tied social security. So, so our, in the West, we had that ever since we tied our FICA scores to our social security numbers. And so we've long had social credit. Like we consider it a ding on your credit and people 
Like you know, when young people are maybe buying their first car, they realize how dumb our system is immediately because they're because the fact that they never had to borrow money before, which you would think is a good sign, like an intuitively good sign works against them. They right? say, oh, no, you need to have built up credit to have credit. Like what's almost kind of backwards, right? Because a person who's demonstrated their whole life and never had to borrow a dollar. Here they are. They're 30 years old and they're going to go buy a car. And they're saying, oh, you've never. Right. So you never uh, you've never been in debt before. So we're, we're not sure about you being in debt. Right. It's like, hmm. Hmm. OK, I, I can kind of see the logic there, but it's kind of inverted in many ways if you think about it. So. Um, We've long had a, a social credit system and our own politicians are, are playing this kind of, uh, I want to call it like Sinophobia. It's almost like China fear mongering. And uh, which is not to say that I want to live in China. I, I've never, I haven't learned enough about the place and I'm happy where I am. Um, whenever I hear from dissidents within China, I mean, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Like I want to hear what the, what the complaints are or what they're talking about. But from what I've learned about like the social credit thing, it's it's not even, it's it's maybe what we have now. I mean, but it's not, not even, it, it's like, uh, so we should just focus on, even though it's good to see like what's the problems in other countries now or in the past and to learn from the past or to learn from each other, that's very important, but we have to really know what's going on if we're gonna learn. Um, and the United States has had credit cards. Well, I'm trying to remember the plates came out in like 46 or 47. They used to be like metal plates. They used to be more for traveling salesmen. And then there would be an account that was kept like for their expenses to be included with their employer. And then banks began to issue them. And they used to be actually metal cards. Um, and uh, and they and then that's where they had the original rubbing plates. You know, remember we used to rub the cards on the uh, what was that? That receipt paper with the little black ink and the uh, carbon paper. And um, I'm like, uh, yeah, another century. Yeah. So we used to use these carbon paper rubs, and they were doing that from the very beginning to generate these receipts. And um, um, it used to be a sign, uh, but but. People would either assume that you were uh, on business if you used a card, like you were a businessman if you were using a card. But the idea that an affluent person, or like a successful person, would have credit cards is also counterintuitive. It is actually counterintuitive, but yet that was marketed very heavily. Like there was films like Rocky Three, where he's marketing. You know, he's there. He's in his boxing glove and he's advertising. Hey, I'm a successful athlete. I mean, obviously it's a commercial inside of a movie, but that's what they're telling you, like what's the gestalt or what's the what's the um, the zeitgeist, you know, what's the cultural zeitgeist at this time is credit is wealth, you know, credit is wealth. Well, no, that's that's not, that's like, that's an obligation, right? Like you have assets and liabilities, you know, you have to know the difference, but no, not anymore. You know, your liabilities are assets, you know? So this is like a very interesting time to be alive. But we got to know that China did not invent social credit. And uh, it's like, you know, imagine you, you, you imagine like all these things that are going on with our own elites. And yeah, there's probably some scary stuff the Chinese are doing. But like how those two pieces fit or, or how we're supposed to 
basically let our own elites off the hook and then get them to join us against China. I mean, I don't know what they have in mind, but it's got to be something crooked like that. And it seems like something is brewing also when it comes to that part of the world in Southeast Asia. But you can please maybe connect it. While it was so obvious, was so when when it was so obvious that that uh, it, the Ukraine is going nowhere, then suddenly the Gaza Israel conflict happened, and then lately in in the part of the Philippines. There's always that conversation now that, oh, the, the Philippines has this conflict with China. And, you know, there's one island that is so close to, to uh, China and, uh, and, and Taiwan as well. And when, when I am confronted with people who really believe how, what, what's the plan of China to conquer the whole world, I always say, say to them, can you map out the different bases around the world and see how many China bases are in other countries. And how about the United States, you know, the West, how many bases is like in the Philippines? So um, see, see, share to us what you think of what's going on that suddenly, you know how it's one event to another to another, you know? And, but it's exciting because as you mentioned before, what's happening in Africa, I like that. I like that. It's like the turtle who's swimming in the vast ocean of lies. And now you can go up, put your head up, so. <clears throat> so when I look at what you're, what you're kind of referencing with these different places and the conflicts and how one is sometimes referred to as strategic sequencing. And strategic sequencing is, um, you can think, for example, strategic sequencing would work something like this. So um, let's say that you're a famous barroom brawler, right? And you've had your five shots of, uh, of bourbon and now you've created enough shit in the room to have a fight with everybody. But are you really going to fight everybody all at once? Or are you kind of planning, you know, like you're going to knock this guy in the nose and then you're going to grab the pull stick and then knock this guy over. And then you're going to grab the chair and break out the window. So if you have to escape, you can jump out that window. But you're not going to hit everybody at the same time. And kind of like who you take down matters right and who you take down first you might be able even to make an example you might take out the biggest guy first and then make everyone kind of up for a second and before they attack you so that's strategic sequencing it's the order of events that you do it but um it's also more than that because there's other people too and other people might join in or stop you based upon the order of events you might even have you might even have your future victims you know, people that you're, you know, strategically sequencing. So um, we saw, for example, like a very good example of strategic sequencing the first time was how there was conflicts in Ukraine and Syria at the same time. Yeah. So you had like, <clears throat> one of the things that we've noticed in the plans that they do in these strategic sequences is that 
even if key aspects of sequences fail to materialize, they nevertheless follow through with the other steps. That's the most important thing to understand about strategic sequencing is that even when they have misfires, delays, or total failures at critical points, the rest of the sequence, they still fire off the rest of the sequence as planned. That's, and then, so because of that, okay, because of that, it allows us to go back, right, forensically into these events and then to find um, remnants or artifacts of bigger original plans that this one action or part of the plan would have been a much more effective part of had it taken place. So that's one of the most interesting things that we find in strategic sequencing is that um, for a lot of reasons that deserve their own discussion really, the plans, the, the totality of the plan is always carried out as much as possible. Yeah, even if they know that without this piece, now the rest of the thing succeeding has less than a 30% chance of succeeding or something like that, they will still go through with it. Anyway, so we saw in Ukraine and Syria, right, they were sequencing things back and forth, whether it would be, well, in layman's terms, you might call it a false flag or a provocation or something like this. Anyway, so these types of kinetic events will go back and forth. Yeah, and they would like them all to succeed but they will do the next one even if the last one fails to you know to 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 succeed to accomplish the goals so um today for example when we had the them run into a very difficult uh part uh with um russia ukraine they had been putting pressure on the chinese to come up with their own peace plan this goes back to the beginning of the year that we're in right now, before all of this hoopla about the counteroffensive, right? And then the counteroffensive launches and then it fails. So this goes back before the hoopla around the counteroffensive. And it was understood that Ukraine is not in a good position long term. However, rhetorically, and I think um, dishonestly, they were claiming a series of victories that they were adding to some real victories that they had, but they were including when at the beginning of the conflict, as early as like March and April, Russia withdrew from a lot of the places that it had moved into, that it had invaded, it pulled out of as they were as a forward sign, as they were about to sign the peace agreement, right? Um, as the African grain deal was falling apart and the African delegation went to Moscow and Putin addressed them. Um, he showed them a document which, when you talk about the stakes involved here and the verification and what it would mean to falsify such a thing, I believe that it was real. And it was, a, it was the signature of the chief negotiator of the Ukrainian negotiating team that had agreed to the terms of peace. So then between that tentative agreement and not having peace, what happened? Well, the their chief negotiator in charge of finances was murdered. The Ukrainian negotiator was murdered. Boris Johnson had a phone call with Zelensky and said, do not sign this peace agreement. The Turks had already said that the Ukrainian team had already, like, <clears throat> this, these are grown-ups and they don't F around. 
Like the Turks had already pre-screened that the Ukrainian team would agree to these Russian terms. They wouldn't have gotten together in the first place. So actually Turkey put its neck out on the line or, or was part of a long scam. Take your pick, both fit into the model. And Russia basically pulled out of large parts of northern and central northern Ukraine in exchange for this tentative agreement, but then Zelensky did not sign it. Um, but we also got the grain deal out of this and the neutralization of Odessa. Many things came out of it, but as these things were getting very difficult for them, they called upon the Chinese to come up with a peace plan and the Chinese came up with a 12 point peace plan. Now the first three or four sections of that were definitely preambulatory language, which means that it only says things like, we recognize the right of all countries to self-determination and we call on all parties to look for solutions to peace, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing with any direction, blame or punch. But the following eight or nine pieces were definitely descriptive and a call to action. And in that call to action, um, it was not included that Russia needs to pull out of Ukraine in order for both parties to sit down. What the, what the West has been misadvising Ukraine and forcing through their puppet control over the Zelensky regime to actually toss out the possibility of, of peace talks altogether. Number one, they passed a law making it illegal for Zelensky to talk to Putin and to sign a peace agreement with him, period. So that's the end of that. But if you want to dig, if you need more than that, we also know that they um, they went into they they would then demand that even not only would effectively Putin have to step down and have a new person in charge, and then Russia would have to pull out the military completely to the 1991 borders, and then um, I say that Moscow should withdraw to the 1988 borders, but no one listens to me. Um, what should then what then happens <laughs> what then happens is that um, is that Ukraine is then mobilized into uh, a war footing, but um, the Chinese were misrepresented repeatedly by Blinken, and Blinken kept lying and saying the Chinese were calling on Russia to do things. Finally, the spokesman of the one of the spokesmen of the Chinese foreign ministry had to actually take a, a tone of what one would call in in, in uh, diplomatic terms. Um, well, he took issue with it, um, but you, you would almost call it um, an admonition and an, an admonishment. And he had to admonish um, Blinken and Western media for misrepresenting that China had said that Russia had violated Ukraine's territorial integrity. They never actually said that. It's very interesting. Um, the China's uh, ambassador to France went further and said that he wasn't sure that Ukraine was a sovereign state in the sense that other countries didn't have it, uh, didn't necessarily recognize these countries emerge out of the collapse of the Soviet Union. That, that their status as sovereign states was questionable at best. So um, even though that was not considered the official position of the Chinese foreign ministry for, I mean, and had this been China's ambassador to Guatemala, 
maybe it wouldn't have been as important, but this was China's ambassador to France, the very same France led by the very same Macron who would go on to sign the, I don't know what it was, 60, $70 billion trade deal with China. And in response, France, just for the record so people know, when you actually look at who's given what to Ukraine, not promises, but what's come through, France has only come through with like $200 million or $250 million in money. Now, there's obviously, you're talking there's military systems and, that have dollar values, that they donated military equipment. But in terms of cash, France has been very, very cold on Ukraine ever since China's interesting deal that they made with France over a year ago. So, you know, you put all those pieces together, but the kinetic, the uh, strategic sequencing would be like then, oh, China is going to be moving on Taiwan, right? Or we need to now focus or we need to get Russia to understand that China's the threat. And it's like, it, it, the, I, I won't even get into the stupidity of thinking that the Chinese aren't listening when you say things like, or that the Russians aren't listening when you say things like this, because what they're saying is that, well, maybe we should have been easier on Russia so that we could use Russia against China or something like this. And, and this is like, well, you know, maybe you're doing us all a big favor and maybe you're doing the Lord's work by saying that out loud, because now for sure no one's going to go for it. You know, I mean, typically strategic people, that's the stuff you kind of don't say out loud. Saying it out loud means that there's no chance it's going to happen. At least they're paying respect to the concept that there may have been some other way of doing things. But be that as it may, here we are. The idea that Taiwan, you know, it's like China already had as much of Taiwan or it has the relationship with Taiwan that it wants and needs for a long time. What people don't understand is that the... Um, the Kuomintang government that controlled Taiwan for this whole time, uh, uh, no one ever said that we're indigenous Formosans or we're indigenous Taiwanese. Like everyone said we're Chinese, right? And everyone agreed with one China. So where the story was at up until a few years ago, and I mean just a few years ago, was just like how can the Kuomintang system incorporate into a Chinese system uh, on the basis of Hong Kong, on the model of Hong Kong. It's uh, called One China, Two Systems. So having a Hong Kong type system for Taiwan would have met and exceeded the requirements of Taiwan's ethnic Chinese oligarchy. And they don't have to join the, the CPC and they can remain Kuomintang. And in fact, there are KMT parties that actually run in mainland China. Actually, there's many different political parties in China. It's very interesting, people don't always know. So um, what happened is that Soros got behind, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and say a mentally ill woman who uh, has been a, a proponent of any extremism as a stunt. In her entire parliamentary career, all she was known as, as extremist stunts. So now what, what she was uh, handpicked by the Soros organization to lead a, the, a movement, what's called Taiwanese nationalism in English, but it's totally a revision of the entire concept of the Chinese experience with Taiwan and what Taiwan is to China. Because why? Well, because the normal government of Taiwan 
basically agreed with on the terms of normalization with China. Um, China doesn't think China isn't a, a kid playing a, a map based grand conquest game. China is not interested in coloring in all the countries on a map the color of China. Okay, this is a very strange English way of seeing the world that only has arisen in the last 150 years. Uh, the idea of what victory means and what success means, what does it mean to have cultural hegemony? What does it mean to have long-term stability? What does it mean to, to have, what do, you know, what do these things mean? So what I'm trying to say is that this zero-sum game, all-or-nothing approach, right, is, is part of the way that the English, the British system, has not only been telling us that things are and, sh and will be, but they've been revising history backwards. I mean, going from Livy, the way that they interpret everything from Roman history in any direction you want, has always been this idea that, that empires function the way that they have modeled it. So um, rather, when you look at you know the Chinese hundreds of years ago, uh, actually was well positioned to be a global or colonial power for Africa and all of South Asia, and including many the coast of India as well. So then they burnt the fleet to the ground. Okay, they just burnt the fleet. Well, not to the ground. I guess they burnt the fleet into the ocean, and um, and that was that. So so there's an interesting reason why this had to happen and why the why the leadership did that. Well, think about. Every society has an oligarchy, but not all oligarchies are plutocracies and not all plutocracies are driven by foreign investment. So people talk about oligarchy as a kind of a, uh, you know, unfortunately, I would say that oligarchy is a fact of life, I would say. But you have different types of oligarchies and the relationship and the power structure and how permeable they are and how rotatable they are, and how much we have access to them or how much our voice is part of their decision-making process and whether the society is more diamond-shaped or whether it's pyramid-shaped. You know, you can have a pyramid-shaped society, which is very bad. You can have a diamond-shaped society, which is better because then, you know, most of the people, you know, the more wide your diamond shape is, the better it is. So you want a very wide diamond shape as you want it as horizontal as possible so that the distribution of wealth and power is stable. You need to have incentives. You're always going to have an underclass. You're always going to have an overclass to a certain extent, but they don't have to be permanent and they don't have to be large. So anyway, in thinking about different social structures and different ways that society is modeled, okay, in looking at the way that um, the, the society that um, that we have in the United States, for example, is a pyramid-shaped society. Okay, and the the culture, like in the Beltway, like in Washington D.C., it's like another country. It's like some other breakaway civilization. It's like another planet. So the things that are going on in Washington are disconnected from the trials and tribulations of most of the working class and middle class in the United States. Well. In a sense, you would think, oh, okay, so they're ignoring what's going on at home, but they're very focused on the global situation. They're very focused. 
Well, they might be focused there, but they're losing. So they're not very good at what they're doing, whatever it is. From their own interest perspective, they're losing, which I think is good for everyone else, though. Now, um, so I guess you could call me an optimist, but I would say I'm a realist who is not allowing the gargoyle effect, and I'm not allowing uh, bots and trolls that are black pillars. You know, this is what I opened with talking about, really, was how the information sphere is being penetrated by people that you might think are authentic individuals, but they're actually there to spread doom and gloom by using authentic counter-hegemonic or alternative talking points. You might think that you're talking to someone who actually believes in resistance, but then when you actually hear them, basically what they say is resistance is futile. So uh, you have to always wonder where that message is coming from. Of course, you're always going to have some like part of the population that simply may have started out like you and then, but they, you know, weird people are very strange and they develop deformations in their character over time and fetishes that grow over time in their life. And they may have grown to like the like being the person who who says the scary or ugly thing to the other person. They may have developed this deformation in their character that now they get off on telling someone, well, yes, it's true, but it's always been like this and there's no chance that we can stop it. Um, I call that the gargoyle effect when it's done on purpose by institutions in power. But people can accidentally land on this as well. Don't get me wrong. So just because someone has a doom and gloom perspective doesn't mean they're a bot, doesn't mean that they're a troll, but just know that those are out there being promoted very strongly. And so just one more question, if that's okay, Joaquin. Yes. Yeah. So you mentioned Washington. Do you still believe in elections? And what are what what are the implications of the current you know, the, of the upcoming primary elections? Because that's a big conversation here in the United States, and people have all different opinions. But I do want to 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 hear what's your take on it, especially in relation to its implications on the global situations. Elections in the United States used to be less important than they are today. Um, generally speaking, we are in a time of transition in terms of how the vested interests and the, status, the, the power holders of the status quo are trying to deal with actually peer-to-peer um, -peer social media. They're trying to deal with how to have elections and be able to control the outcome of elections. This, this is, you see, we actually had, <clears throat> when it came to the actual elections, 30 and 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we had much more transparency. We had a much better system of conducting elections in the past. The reason that it was much more transparent and fair and clear and honest was because the system had so much more confidence that no matter which way people voted, it was going to work out for the system because they were controlling the narrative through the news and through media. But now that they no longer control the narrative, right? So now where are they going to make up for that loss of control? Well, now they need to interfere more in the actual electoral processes 
so that the person who might have won all of a sudden wakes up and found out that we're still recounting the votes and, and maybe they didn't win. So there's many, many things that make it very complicated for, you know, but elections only happen, you know, intermittently. For some people only vote every four years, some people vote every two years, some people look for everything and they vote whenever there's an election. But the truth is that elections matter the most when societies are having a referendum or a crisis like we're having. And even though it's just one day, right, the actual voting is one day. And I think that as much as the effort that we put into debating who to vote for or all this, you know, elections matter and voting matters and people should vote. But if that's all they're going to do, then they shouldn't expect any change. Like there's in a given year, there's 364 other days that you're not voting. And every, you know, in a, in a four year, you know, prison for your prison, four year prison sentence in a four year presidential uh, cycle. Where's my head at? Uh, in a four year presidential cycle, you've got 1500, 1400 something days, you know, with no voting and only one day, it used to be one day voting. So treat those accordingly. You know, people should be active and activists and verbal and communicative and, and relationship and community building on all of these issues that they can, especially the ones that directly affect them. Cause then it's just an extension of your life. If you have kids, make the fight around childcare. If you have elderly parents, make it around that. You often have both, you're fighting for yourself, you're fighting for your family. Don't think that you have to discover or uncover exotic issues. We we're, This isn't the seventies or eighties where we're all doing so well on Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we now can then now, you know, take some time to see where the problems are in the world that we can go fucking help. No, we're all having crisis now. So we all know what the problems are. So it's, we get much more bang for our voting buck if we're active behind the issues. And then it's all about like, we don't expect the politicians to be able to carry through the promise. It's almost just like the issue becomes galvanizing for the issue and then you might move people and it might be something that you move locally. But because it has national attention in the context of a presidential race, people, it might have gravity. It might get attention, but maybe the effect you might make will be at the state level around that issue. You know, so people should treat with proportion the amount of, you know, how many days in a year we actually vote versus doing everything else. And that's how much importance we should put to voting by itself, you know, but in connection with, you know, like, for example, I wouldn't vote for anybody that said that they plan to follow the World Health Organization's recommendations for a pandemic, for me personally, right? So, but that's only just one day voting. Does that mean that I don't talk about the subject the other day? No, right? Like, and that politician might fail us, or they might get under pressure from blocks and the, the cabinet might stink, or there might be an assassination attempt. Who knows? People have the power. We're the ones that drive this anyway. If we have electoral successes, those are symbolic, they're cultural, they're maybe legal, but in terms of the inertia, it's gonna be you know people power all the way. 
Now, when it comes to the, you know, the Republican uh, or Democrat uh, primaries, Democrats are not having a primary. Republicans don't need a primary. And uh, I think we have it mixed up. I would love to see a healthy Democrat primary process. I would love to not assume that Joe Biden is just because he, he's the incumbent, that that means that he's the guy. I mean, he's ABC released a poll that was done by, what is it? 538 that said that Joe Biden only has a 37.17% approval rating. And they said that's the lowest in living memory going back to, gosh, it would be uh, Truman. And uh, that there hasn't been a president as unpopular in his first term as Truman. People know Truman was a great trader uh, relative to Roosevelt. He's considered like the Judas of Roosevelt. He's also a war criminal and uh, was never convicted for the you know murder of uh, several hundred thousand Japanese. So these are things that shouldn't be like easily forgotten or, you know, these are things that should be, you know, when you look at someone like Joe Biden, who has for so long lost his critical faculties. And when he did have them, he was a very evil and corrupt man. I, I, I like him more now with dementia because now I feel like this is elder abuse and now I feel like he's the victim. I can take care of him. We got to get him off the stage. I want to see him in prison, but if it wasn't in prison, I'd like to see him in a white collar institution with a cozy blanket and like with a TV reading newspaper. I, I just, you know what I mean? Go with God, have the rest of your life and stuff. And, um, but has no business pretending to be president. He's clearly on taking lots of Aricept or something. So I think um, he should have you know, stood down. And what they had been saying is that he was making room for Pete Buttigieg. That's what they were saying you know, three years ago when, when he was running and it was understood that he doesn't represent anything interesting in the party. And then, you know, there's supposed to be energy or youth or an agenda or whatever that means. But then Pete Buttigieg is like this really weird character. Imagine like a college kid that did a really good Obama impression. Like you would think that was kind of a cool novelty, but that doesn't mean that you're presidential. But I guess it does mean you're presidential when that's the only thing you're focused on. And so they rolled Pete Buttigieg out on us and they made him the what is it? Is it housing and transportation secretary? Um, and that should, or transportation. So that should mean that like all of these accidents we've had, like in, uh, in Palestine, was it Palestine, Ohio, East Palestine, Ohio, places like this, um, where, you know, trains were derailed, chemical spills, or the crisis that happened in Hawaii, like all of these things would have been Pete Buttigieg should have been all over, like acting like the president, right? You would have thought these would have been the events that Pete Buttigieg should have jumped out and been there to, you know, as you're having these uh, federal transportation issues that involve transportation production, uh, whether it's cyber attacks, whether it's like food supply, agriculture, transportation, truckers, everything like in this universe, like you would think that in this crisis that we're having and with the very questionable events, you know, crises, uh, random acts of God or whatever, um, Buddha judge should have been all over that. And the fact that he wasn't to me means that 
they plan on sticking with Biden like this, which is really strange uh, how they're going to manage that one. Like from an actuarial perspective, he must have like a 65 or 70 percent chance of dying before he finishes a second term. So I, I just don't know, you know, what they would have in mind. Would it be Kamala Harris or would it be? So it's a very weird, weird time in the United States, I have to say, because it's like they're trying to they're trying to show us. I, there's an expression, you know, when people tell you who they are, like, believe them, listen to them. And I feel like the United States is saying to the world right now, like, we are exactly what you see in our leadership. Thank you, Joaquin. You know, you're well appreciated. You know that, right? So <laughs> not just by me, but my entire audience and followers. So um, I, even if it's printed here that you they could get in touch with you in, in Telegram, but do tell the audience now how, you know, how to invite them to what you're doing and many others. But let me tell my audience that if you just type in Joaquin Flores, in, in search it, you know, you can find a lot of past interviews, past articles and uh, that he has written, okay? But to be currently connected, he's in Telegram. So please invite them again, Joaquin, and much love to you and your family and to all your followers and viewers. And I'm proud to be part of the community. Wait. Yes. I'm proud to be with you and, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so on Telegram, I'm, it's New Resistance. At New Resistance, you will find myself on Telegram. But also, like you said, Grace, I'm going to be visible. Like I've been putting out stuff for the past 10 or 15 years. And you're going to see, you know, old YouTube things on BitChute and on Rumble um articles i've written whether it's for you know ron paul liberty foundation or for strategic culture foundation i've been writing on questions of war uh technology uh color revolution uh and culture um you know for the over you know 15 years and yeah it's all out there and uh but i invite you uh i'm as a result of a lot of censorship and a lot of uh you know, tough decisions about where to focus uh, my energies right now in my quasi-retirement. Um, new resistance on Telegram is going to be, it's, it's, a, it's, I'm updating it daily, sometimes 10 to 30 times a day. Um, and I'm keeping up with events. Really, Ukraine is a big one. Uh, but as things happen big with Gaza, I will update. Um, but of course, the broader issues of war, the Great Reset, Fourth Industrial Revolution, transhumanism, combating the World Economic Forum globalist agenda. Those are all the things and the awakening that all that we as individuals and as communities are coming into uh, spiritually, religiously, as human beings in this time and place. This is definitely uh, the spirit of the age. Yeah, and you could find him also in TNT and many other platforms that are my favorite as well. And uh, you also have um, Joaquin another Telegram even talking about relationships. See, 
Joaquin covers it everything. I think he listens very well to the need of his community, to what's coming up, and then he creates a channel for that. And if you know how to use the telegram, if if you go back, if you go to the, the files and music, you'll see even a few recorded uh, live stream that he's had. And for those who love to educate more or to read the Bible, there's a few about, you know, in the New Testament, which I like John, you know, in the New Testament. So all, all of that. And, and, and Joaquin, thank you for, um, it, it, it could, it's from you or from others in the, in the community when they post some video clips on um, Larry David, they just have a crack of that. I send it to my little group and, and they're, they're happy to, to have that. So thank you for everything. Okay? Yes, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Fantastic. And I, I can't wait to do this again. So anytime, just let me know. Oh, thank you. And Roy of Awakening Podcast, and he has many other podcasts because he's just doing, you know, you know, when you want to be fruitful to, and you have some kind of passion and a little bit of talent, I just have a little bit of talent and I maximize it here. <laughs> okay, but so we we thank you, me Grace Saga of Quantum Nurse Podcast and Roy of Awakening Podcast and Joaquin Flores, ex Floresy. He even defeated the X channel. He has <laughs> That's right. X. He has yeah. he had the X before. Elon. X. That's right. I did. That's right. Yes. So. Thanks again, and please share, 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 donate in all the links that I did, I, you know, I posted, and take care of yourself. And as Joaquin said, don't be engaged just for one day, every <laughs> moment. Okay, take care, everyone. Bye. -bye. Thank you, Roy. Thank you, Grace. Thank you.